morning. My name's Andrew Belletti, and today I'm in Darwin talking with artist, singer, songwriter, director, producer, mentor, and long-standing Fred, Todd Williams. Good morning, Todd. Good morning, Andrew. Did I miss anything there? Uh, no, I think you covered it all. Uh... Now, I just want to talk initially about where we are and what it is you're doing here and how that kind of came about and pretty much kind of big picture stuff. I have been involved in the um, uh, VAMP TV project now for the last 11 years. Um, what VAMP stands for is Video Arts, Music and Performance. It's a project that was... Um, developed after the Minister for Education approached the music school um, as a way to engage Indigenous kids at school um, because um, uh, getting bums on seats and keeping kids uh, at school in communities was uh, is and was uh, an issue. Um, there was uh, ways of engaging kids through the sports, through Clontaf, but the education minister approached the school to say, well, how can we engage kids uh, in remote schools um, through the arts and the um, or through music? Uh, and our principal at the time gave him a list of ideas and he basically chose um, the VAMP TV idea. Now, the idea is to create a magazine-style um, show, which would be a combination of material that we would generate, um, but also uh, invite schools to send in material to let uh, other schools know what they're doing and to showcase what they're doing in a fun way. Um, and then we'd have hosts and we'd package it all up together um, and uh, then be able to distribute it via the internet into schools um, uh, and, uh, yeah, as part of classroom activities. So in a lot of ways, it gave uh, kids an opportunity to see themselves, to see themselves in a really positive light um, because at that time, this is before NITV had emerged, um, at that time there wasn't very much uh, representation of uh, Indigenous people full stop, but particularly Indigenous kids um, uh, available. So they couldn't really see themselves. So this was a really good feedback loop uh, for Indigenous kids to see themselves and feel positive about uh, who they were and what they were doing about their culture, about uh, what they were doing at school, um, and uh, to have a little bit of fun with it. Okay, so that's... Um it's a lot to, <laughs> to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. But, um, yeah, what I'm seeing is, like, it, it goes well beyond kind of um, diversion. Th th this is, you know, you're getting kids who are still in school or potentially should be in school um, to be more engaged and more interested in both music plus also building capacity within communities to produce stuff. And and what from what I've seen, I've seen quite a few episodes um, – just seeing kids presenting and it, uh, t to me that's a huge thing because you know I've spoken about this before but shame job is such a big factor here you know and just to see what you guys do which is like when it's being produced by um, community people on within that community for that community and um, to see young kids uh, of school age in front of the camera and like even if they're doing a little Q&A &A or if they're introducing a bit of sport or music, 
it's awesome. Yeah, and shame job is a, a big kind of uh, cultural thing, um, and that's something that we we try to overcome uh, when uh, the team go into a community. We we know that within school that there is um, a lot of people who are going to waggle their fingers and, and almost shout at them to to behave or to do this. They almost immediately can sense that we're not we're not like that. We you know we're, we're very relaxed. We try to put them at ease and to give them the confidence to um, uh, be themselves um, and uh, even rise up and to perform, um, whether it be. Um, in uh, on on camera or to uh, you know, go and re- record music and so on. And whereabouts do you guys reach in the Northern Territory? Um, well, the whole of the Northern Territory is our um, our backyard. Um, initially, we uh, uh, my uh, colleague uh, Rodney Balam uh, and I, when we started out, we went all over the territory. But now, uh, for the last four years, five years, we've had uh, a a team member uh, based in Alice Springs who services the southern uh, areas, goes out to uh, schools um, and uh, does stories within schools there. Um, He's just working on a story right now um, out of Papania where part of our, one of our programs um, is called Beat School um, and that is about encouraging uh, or teaching teachers how to teach beats on iPads, giving them the confidence to engage kids um, so they can sit there and and spend an hour uh, or a classroom hour developing just with their headphones on um, beats and how to overlay a bass line on that and how that can open up a world Um, because uh, with technology we know that kids just climb onto that stuff so quickly um, and uh, out of that, um, if it all goes well with the teacher and the, the teacher's really into it, um, the, the, that leads on to lyric writing, which helps um, with the confidence in uh, um, English and so on, um, and uh, literature. They um, can also then, if they if it, if it gets to a stake where they, uh, and we've, we've got about five, six, uh, actual songs which have come out of the, the Beat School uh, project which has only been up and running for the last couple of years and sometimes the school makes a film clip of that sometimes we go out and make a film clip with them um, the Nubawa one was fantastic We, uh, I'll show you that later uh, but uh, it is a um, it, it just seems uh, we, we're trying to work out appropriate ways to engage uh, or to deliver music education in um, in very remote schools because the tyranny of distance is a terrible thing. It's very expensive to uh, to go out and to send teachers out there specifically for that. So by um, having the teachers uh, teach beats, um, they're, they're supported by one of our teachers back here. If they um, uh, we can go online and they can do a session online uh, and the kids can show um, our teacher what they're doing and then get encouragement that way and to support the teachers that way. So it's, I mean, you're building capacity at one level, both within the the student body or the potential student body, plus also the teachers. Um, and that's an interesting thing. Yeah. And you're also... Um, you know, whenever you're, you're doing things like this where it's a, 
it's a com- it's a community, but it's a big community platform because you're saying NT wide, you're seeing people from all over the NT and they're seeing themselves, they're seeing others. And that's a really big, not only individual community building thing, but it's a it's a kind of a an a, a statewide, it's almost a nation kind of building exercise, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's kind of holistic. And um, when we started out, um, we were concerned that, um, oh, you know, uh, kids in, uh, say, uh, Arionga weren't going to be really necessarily interested in what kids were doing in Yerikala, but that's not the case. They love seeing kids do, you know, seeing their life and seeing what they're going through, and it's it's, it's educative um, in in that sense because otherwise they may not ever see what 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 each is what each others are doing and what various um, schools and their programs uh, are doing um, uh, across the territory and that's also inspirational for teachers to go oh I like that idea I'm going to do that with my kids um, and uh, that's really kind of sharing uh, knowledge sharing inspiration and uh, sharing um, uh, yeah role models and so yeah. on and the the capacity building the, the visibility that you, that you were talking about before um, you know just the thing of seeing Aboriginal children on screen but on a regular basis and from a diverse you know set of communities um that must be really empowering i mean is, has have you seen kids that you've started with and that have now gone through some path and become a performer or, or a dancer or they've joined somebody or well i can give you two uh, cracker examples um uh, there is a young fella uh, that we met in uh, right at the beginning of the project, who's who's hanging around our mobile studio at Gama, um, playing guitar, and he was in a, a local band. He was only fifteen at the time. He's working with his uh, good friend uh, Theo Di Matteo, um, and they went through various bands. Uh, we, I, uh, we also caught up with him uh, at the Battle of the School Bands. Uh, uh, we have have this program um, that's been going ongoing uh, since I think about 2011, um, and uh, they entered the, the the Battle of the School Band as the Neil Boys, Northeast Arnhem lads, um, and they then became the Seven Star Band. They went through. Now their latest gig is King Stingray. They're the two front men of. King Stingray um, and Dimita- uh, sorry, um, Yiringa started off as a drummer um, and gravitated to writing his own songs, then um, being the front man occasionally for Youth Indie. Now he's the front man for the Youth Indie project full time um, and uh, being uh, the front man for King Stingray. So we've seen his journey um, from a, a kind of shy, skinny little boy to national and soon-to-be international success of, of King Stingray. And he is, you know, we've... Uh, they won Battle of the School Band, so they got to perform at Bass in the Grass, a major music uh, event up here. Um, so that, that was a mind-blowing uh, experience for them um, and gave them a taste of what it was like to have big production and so on. Um, and so that is a really good example of, uh, of how... Uh, um, th- through VAMP and through our programs here at the anti-music school um, ha- has gone on to bigger things. The other example, which only came up last year, um, again through Battle of the School Bands, 
was a very, very small school called Mulgabor, which is just um, northeast of Alice Springs. Um, you're nodding your head, you, remember, you know the story. Um, Mulgabor saw um, Battle of the School Bands being advertised and saying, you know, get your entry in if you want to be part of this. They didn't have a band at that stage. His bass player had never picked up a bass. Um, but they entered the Battle of the School Bands and um, uh, the heat in Alice Springs, blew everyone away um, at Alice Springs. Um, and for those who don't know, they were very, very influenced by their parents' um, taste in music, uh, being uh, Kiss and Status Quo and those 70s bands, um, to the point where um, they performed with uh, Kiss-like makeup in school colours on their face when they performed. Um, so not only did they win the heat they went on to win the Battle of the School Bands last year. Um, they were invited to play at the Beat Festival in Darwin, so they came up and played three nights there. Oh, sorry, two nights, because on the third night they had to fly down to the Gold Coast to support KISS. No. They got the opportunity to play with KISS and to meet their heroes and um, at, the, at the Gold Coast um, and that just was totally mind-blowing for them. So within six months of them you know, deciding to enter the school bands, they are on stage with, with KISS. One thing I will say is um, Alvin, who is you know, the front man and the songwriter for the... He is an amazing musician. musician. He's only 17, 18. He's still at school now um, and... He has uh, coalesced the band into a very, very powerful rock unit. Um, they recently used their prize from Battle of the School Bands to record a new song called Fame Not Shame, which <laughs> ties into that. Love it. That ties into uh, that, that shame job and overcoming that factor. And, it's, um, um, and our colleague in uh, Alice Springs, Stuart um, Liddell, uh, did a film clip for them. Um, and we put it on the last episode of AMP TV, and it's a cracker. It's absolutely um, um, a, a, a ball terror. So um, they are really, really good band, and they're still at school. Um, but since the um, since last year, they've been invited to perform um, uh, the Tiwi Islands in Melbourne. Um, in I think they went down to Sydney as well, uh, and a lot of those uh, images from their performing. Um, uh, are in the latest clip, you'll see it's like the adventures of the Mogulpur hard rock band. So that um, was enormously uh, uh, satisfying to see that journey. It has to be said there, it's a tiny school, there's one teacher and everyone in the band's related um, and, it's, and the, the community itself is maybe 50 people um, and the whole community got behind the school. The principal or the, the teacher, uh, Peshala, uh, a Kiwi lady who just really, really got behind um, Alvin and the rest of the band to uh, further themselves, um, supported the band to go to Alice Springs in that, in that first instance. Um, and she uh, certainly has recognised how music really engaged the kids um, and is able to um, teach other things in the curriculum about how much their instruments cost and how they're going to afford this and, and the logistics and how that um, how being in a band actually uh, has uh, a flow-on effect to other parts of the curriculum. 
Um, and so that's a, a huge success story. Look out for Margot Ball Hard Rock and Alvin in particular because they're going to be huge. Yeah, I, I've seen the clip and, it, yeah, I totally agree. I can't believe that they weren't they weren't actually a band. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, before last year, yeah. That is absolutely crazy because they're so confident and competent and I think that's uh, – you couldn't epitomise the work that you guys are doing more than something – you know, like presenting the, the possibility, um, presenting the kind well, of aspirations. Like pathways. We would like to kind of think of it as pathways and, you know, not everything that we, we do is going to uh, resonate with, with a lot of kids. You know, we like to think of it as um, light bulb moments that, uh, you know, someone sitting there going, I could do that, you know, and, and seeing themselves. Um, and as uh, my, my colleague Courtney says, if you can see it, you can be it. And so representation is, is really, really vital um, uh, and, and important for kids to see um, people like themselves up there and doing it. And um, there's, you know, ever since the days, you know, the breakthroughs of bands like uh, Rurumpi Band and, and Yothi Indi, um, Indigenous uh, um, uh, representation is in music and, and so on is has gone from leaps and bounds and you've got people like uh, Baker Boy from Milangimbi um, uh, has come to the fore. He's got his own success story um, and uh, it's just uh, amazing to see and there were so many incredible First Nations uh, performers um, uh, that uh, are making their way in the world. Um, singing and, and language, rapping in language is... is uh, you know, it's really bringing home to people outside, uh, but not the territory in particular, because we know um, how many communities uh, English is a second, third, fourth language down the list uh, of of what they can speak. And for the wider Australian community, still, I don't think have twigged that Aboriginal people s still speak their language. You know, and um, to see people like Baker Boy bringing that to the fore and proudly singing in language um it's just you know a really really uh, important step forward in uh, acknowledgement of the power of indigenous music and language in our country there still seems to be an overrepresentation of bands in the northern territory just on the average weekend there's a stack of original bands playing in such a small town to hear that there's three bands here, there's six bands there, there's another act on, on this night. They're all original bands and they're all playing yeah. as we speak. But you're, you're talking hundreds of bands, aren't you? I mean, Yeah, yeah. every community. Uh, you, you go to, uh, say, the Barunga Festival that's held in June um, every year um, and the Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, there's a sensibly list of, okay, you've got six bands, but then it blows out to ten bands because, oh, yeah, we, we want to get up and do some songs too. Um, and it goes until two or three o'clock in the morning. Um, and the, yeah, the power and the strength... Um, uh, of uh, of community bands um, because they're, they're family family there's such a strong um, connection within uh, music uh, and and families uh, I, I kind of point to someone like the large amount teenage band when they started off in the in the they uh, were teenagers they were teenagers now they're you now the large amount of middle aged men but uh, 
in that band now they've got their sons and their their nephews and stuff in the band learning keyboards and so on and yeah and the older people are really um uh, encouraging uh, passing on those skills and that knowledge um and that confidence to uh, make original music um and that's just yeah awesome it's one of those scenes that i think when you're inside of it you don't fully appreciate how rich diverse and as I said, how overrepresented mu- musicians and bands are in the top end. Because uh, in New South Wales, for example, the the amount of actual bands playing is it's just plummeting to to record lows. Uh, you know, your lack of venues and all sorts of um, issues are affecting that. But there's not a lot of live music, and up here it it, it does still appear that there's lots, and that's mm. an incredible thing. And it's. To me, uh, to get young people, and I mean, uh, what the project uh, that this is a part of is is focusing on twelve to twenty five year olds who are disengaged, or um, you know, uh, at some level they're kind of still finding their way. And um, you know, this type of activity it's beyond diversion. It's 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 community building. It's capacity building. It's aspirational. It's culture too. It's. Um, uh we uh, uh, we both you and I were were there when we saw that crossover with Yuthi Indi bringing a Yungo culture, a Manike um, uh, language uh, within in a rock context. That was um, uh, you know uh, very very new in the eighties. I mean, uh, I think the, the the very first song to be uh, rock song to be. Um, uh, sung was uh, out of jailer by a rumpy band um, back in the day uh, and uh, now we're, we're just kind of seeing such uh, confidence and strength uh, right right across the board yeah so I'm want to just reach back into the past now so you're you've been doing this for the vamp TV thing for how long since 2011 yeah we've yeah we've done we're on our 169th episode each episode's half an hour long and it's a magazine style we've got hosts and you know we keep it moving along we don't you know have too many talking heads we try to make it uh, very visual uh, and as much as we are very conscious of the fact that again ESL we try and let yeah, even if you don't know English, you'd probably understand what's going on because it's all being told in a visual visual way um, and there's lots of music in it. Yeah. Um, and that's that's really, really important. When I first met you in 1983, um, some, sometime around then, um, you were a visual artist, uh, a photographer. Oh, I was doing uni, yeah. I was yeah. doing my finance degree, yeah. And that was, you know, you were, you were, you were doing kind of visual art stuff. Yeah. And um, I had no idea that you were also a songwriter and... and uh, I had no idea either. <laughs> <laughs> and a photographer because you were... Yeah, in I was those, majoring in photography, yeah. In those days, one of the few people people who had cameras yeah. and the ability to develop the film and to buy the film and all that, it just wasn't. Well, um, I started three... Kind of... I got enrolled in three different university courses. They're all kind of science-based and then um, decided to go with fine arts almost not out of desperation but you know i really um had an interest in um in fine arts and um uh, and it, as anyone who's done a fine arts course it, it just 
changed my world and, and the way that I look at the world. And, and especially when I started doing photography, you start to almost frame images just by looking around. You start to look at the world very, very differently. Um, my brother and I were always uh, very, very interested in music. Um, uh, my brother Cal, who uh, uh, ended up being the uh, gu- guitarist in Youth Indie and, and the Swamp Jockeys. Um, so um, we always were in, engaged in music and my brother used to live in a, a block down at uh, Humpty Doo um, where we used to go down there and, and just jam and muck around and we were big Johnny Cash fans and, you know, uh, sing a lot of, lot of songs together. Uh, not only visually, but with sound and so on. We were doing radio at the time as well. Um, and uh, that really kind of fed our interest in music and what was happening and, um, you know, listening to bands like the Gun Club and the Beast Suburban and so on and the Violent Femmes. They were really, really um, uh, uh, in- instrumental in-, in stoking our interest in music. And when we did form a band, um, that... Uh, was um, that's where our touchstones were uh, as well as kind of um, wanting to make it very very particular um, northern top end northern territory sound um, if you could put it that way it was kind of a mixture of all those things and um, and the uh, bands are funny things uh, with the chemistry within a band all the different members bring a different thing a uh, different element to it and if it works it works, you know, and um, you have one member of dropout and suddenly it doesn't work anymore. Um, so uh, over, over that time when we joined um, uh, the, the, the Swamp Jockeys and we had those you know, four years, four or five years of throwing ourselves at the world, um, we were uh, very ambitious. We wanted to take ourselves... Um, uh, not a, you know, we did very well up here. We actually created... A, we had a lot of followers... Um, uh, who came to our gigs regularly and did some wild dancing and uh, some of the best memories of my life is being at the, uh, the, the at Lim's Hotel in that room and from the stage all the way back to the bar was just absolutely packed. Everyone was dancing. Uh, you know, the Irish got that the expression, the cake, you know, and the cake's in the room. Everyone's got a big dopey smile on their face and we're all in that, that whole vibe together and that if you can get to that stage, that's just yeah, that's just enormous. So, you know, we um, made contact during that uh, Black Fella, White Fella tour with Midnight Oil. Uh, two of our, uh, our manager and our, our other lead singer were pilots and they flew Midnight Oil on the top end of of the uh, of that Black Fella, White Fella tour and we got to know Gary Morris and, and the Oils guys. And so when we went down to Sydney, they uh, gave us the opportunity to um, not only play with them but uh, bands like... Uh, spy vs spy even jimmy barnes and so we had a lot of great opportunities and um in the end we ended up touring with minute oil for six weeks on a, on a major tour um and that was enormously educative um as far as going to the next level um was concerned um one of the things I will say from a fine arts point of view and how that kind of crossed over to what we were doing, I learned how to screen print at fine arts and so we um, uh, developed our own um, uh, uh, promotional materials, our posters, our T-shirts. Uh, we printed them ourselves. We had control over that. We were very, very um, 
uh, excited to be able to do that, to establish our own uh, personality, you know, running around Sydney in the middle of the night, putting up posters um, for illegal gigs that we put on um, at, at the warehouse. Um, you know, that kind of flows through. It, it was uh, to be able to contribute not only musically but visually to uh, how a band's perceived and uh, was very, very important to us. I think, yeah, yeah, there's, again, there's a lot to unpack there, but a, cu- a couple of things is you were talking about the, the limbs gigs, which were kind of, for Darwin people at the time, they were like the, the, the they were the holy grail of gigs because they were played in a cage in a barbed wire t- enclosure <laughs> And that started on a Sunday afternoon at yeah. around one o'clock and finished around six or six thirty in the evening. So it was an afternoon gig, which you can imagine in a a, a venue that had a tin roof and um, you know like Not a basketball the, court mesh on the sides, yeah, concrete, yeah, it's concrete, it's concrete just, floor yeah. um, capacity probably about five six hundred. I think the 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 some of those shows that we played there um we got above 1200 people and <laughs> i remember one particular day it was getting towards the wet season probably october um that was kind of one of the end gigs and it was not only was it packed but it was it was so packed and so sweaty that it was raining inside we had created <laughs> a weather system a in limbs yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there was this kind of microclimate going on so yeah. the connection that you're talking about is is not only the kind of vibrations of the music and the bodies within the room but it was kind of interacting with the climate and with everything else and and we were a very performative band. Um, both Michael and myself, uh, as frontmen, really wanted to show people how to engage with the music. We just danced and danced, and we I waved my arms around and shouted a lot. You know, um, Michael spun around doing you know the doing the Goanna, and you know we like putting on a show. And I think that was that was an important uh, part of our success in that. Um, we really wanted to show people how to enjoy our music because we were enjoying it ourselves and um in fact my wife saw me um perform before she even met me and she loved my smile uh, <laughs> and wanted to meet me and so um you know out of out of that i i got my wife of 35 years yeah um so um it's a um, yeah it was a really really um really really important time and um the 80s was nationally a really, really big time for pub music and um, the audiences there were were, uh, were there for, for us uh, if we were good enough. Um, and right across Australia, uh, the pub scenes were just, just pumping with you know, the amazing bands that, that came out during the 80s. Now, can I get back to another thing you talked about and it's right on topic. Um, so we were then talking about a, a gig in a pub, which in a town that when we first started playing, um, uh, the hoteliers and the, the, the people who managed bars like Limbs or the Vic or the Nightcliff Hotel or whatever, they would not uh, entertain the idea of a band that played original music. Very resistant. Yeah. Very resistant. A, a, as in, no, uh, <laughs> you can't play here. Yeah. So for years, I think, and it, even at the point where we had 
you know, such a proven um, following. I mean, you know, we played on the roof of the, the workers' club for, yeah. you know, May Day and there was thousands and thousands of yeah, people and I think that's what turned it. Bar, yeah. yeah, so I think the, those huge crowds finally turned the pubs towards a band that played original music. But before that, it was absolutely a no. So we existed outside, like, a, a, you know, kind of vernacular uh, music venues and, you know, we were making stuff up, you know, booking a scout hall, booking a Greek hall. The, if you just go on the Greek hall, um, the that's this perfect example of that because uh, that was during uh, the, what – the precursor of the Darwin Festival, the Bougainvillea Festival, they said, well, we're going to put on a, a concert down at the amphitheatre, which was the major gig in town. It's a beautiful venue, natural amphitheatre. It's the, where all the big bands played. And they basically chose a whole lot of cover bands um, to play that. So we just reacted against that. And within a week, we had organised um, several bands to play at the um, at the Greek Hall, which was uh, just a big hall in in, um, in Darwin and uh, with with all original bands. And we packed out the place um, and we called it Dance in Hell. <laughs> <laughs> uh, still got a poster of it somewhere. Um, and uh, it was, uh, it was yeah, look, we, we, you made your own luck. But I uh, well, I do have to kind of give credit to um, uh, you with bands to get ahead. They do need um, an outside. Uh, well, you need a, a, your own sound guy for a start, or person, sound woman, sound guy, um, and you need a manager. And we had a, a very um, savvy manager who was just as ambitious as us, um, and ended up um, being the. You know, you know, he was the manager of. You're the Indian who took them, who ended up taking them all around the world. Alan James is his name, um, and uh, I, I do lay a lot of credit uh, to uh, at, at his feet because he was very important in our development um, and kicking us up the arse and um, making things happen. And um, you know, as he was definitely the sixth member. Yeah, absolutely. And just thinking back to the the Greek Hall, which is another kind of literally just a big barn um, with a wooden floor, and that that was just one of those, again, one of those overly crowded gigs. And it was kind of thumbing uh, our nose at an established um, uh, festival which should have supported us and so profoundly rebuffed our advances just said absolutely no and we you know at that time we were getting that from every single avenue so the reason why I painted up my van remember it had in red house paint dance in hell written across the side of the van um, you know we parked it on street corners and left it there all day um, we printed posters we hand painted a, a big banner outside the Greek hall and the night before the gig someone set fire to set it, it. And we thought we said, well, it was Satan just reaching up and says, I, I want that banner for myself, thank you. But it, it was just like a reaction to, um, you know, it was a small town at the at the time, probably only 60,000 people maybe, Darwin. Um, and to be kind of still, after proving yourself, the, we had proven ability to draw a very big crowd, um, you know, so there was no actual reason to, to stop us. But it seemed like at the time every single avenue was shut to us. So we reached out to to our own to make our own, you know, the Alawa Scout Hall. Um, but we also um, 
I just want to get on the the idea of um, how we were all politically motivated at the time too, which was kind of, you know, not only, you know, getting Indigenous bands up on stage um, uh, in avenues and uh, at occasions when that was never really done, but also, you know, like supporting East Timor at a pivotal time in the, in, in the mid-80s um, and holding gigs where we, you know, kind of said, well, so is there anybody who wants to come up on stage and getting people doing traditional stuff outside Brown's Mart? Um, the unions loved us every May Day, you know, on the rooftop. We brought the house down. Again, one of those memorable gigs where thousands and thousands of people. Um, so there were all these kind of, you know, fairly vernacular spaces that we inhabited and made a success of them, whether it was somebody's lounge room that we almost destroyed the entire house. Um, but, but, you know, these other spaces were really interesting because they were kind of political or, as I said, the bikies or the doctors or whatever. They were really interesting spaces and somehow we made them into something. So it was like the mainstream venues and festivals and all that didn't want anything to do with us. But all this kind of vernacular stuff was was opening up and, and we made it open up. Yeah, it activated a whole lot of different spaces. Yeah, um, yeah we played that nurse's gig out at the hospital um, uh, just on a, on a stage at the back of the, near the generators and so on. Um, and, you know, our... Um, our ethos, you know, we, we, I mentioned the, the, the term wild dancing. I used to put wild dancing on all the posters. It's like we want people just to let themselves go, um, not to be cool, but just to let themselves go, dance like no one's um, watching because that's what we did on stage. We wanted everyone to say, come on down, let's just go off our heads. And um, and that was um, a, a, a really good thing. I, I still believe in, <laughs> in that myself. I get frustrated with bands who just... Yeah, don't engage. Just go, come on. And we play. Was it uh, Gino and Lynn's going away gig at the behind the Roma bar uh, in, yeah. in the car park? In the car park. I don't yeah. think anybody knew that car park was there. Yeah, um, no. it was behind the um, the, the the photo shop, mural yeah. off the um, palm trees, and uh, there was a suddenly a door opened up, and we went, "What the hell's that?" So we, we knew we couldn't play inside the Roma bar, which was our favourite cafe at the time. But um, yeah, that disused car park for want of a better yeah, word activating spaces and um you know we were good at putting on shows um and that required a, a whole lot of logistics and and risk as well um quite often um and we didn't you know make money out of it money wasn't really the um the driving uh a reason for what we were doing, we were just really enjoying what we were doing and um, developing our skills and um, uh, trying to get better. Though the money would have been nice. <laughs> money would have been nice, yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, yeah, I think um, uh, we learned a lot. I mean, our, our bass player now is now uh, managing um, his son's band, King Stingray, um, and uh, through, I think, Stuart's experience with the Swamp Jockeys and Yuthi Indy, because he was the bass player in Yuthi Indy, um, he m- made sure, he makes sure with, with King Stingray that not only do they get paid well and um, control their recordings and so on, but he knocks back 
so much work now because he's just concerned. He doesn't want to fry the band. He just wants to make sure that the band have, have got enough time to decompress, um, and especially for uh, the younger members of the band who are really connected to country, um, to allow them just to go, yep, I'm going to go back to uh, Yitakala now and, and uh, just chill out. Um, yeah, was, yeah, Stewie's telling me that they knocked back tens of thousands of dollars uh, um, just to say, well, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was, um, yeah, I, and I'm really so happy for um, not only Stewie but uh, for Roy and Dimiteo and, 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 and Yeringa and, you know, the rest of the band uh, to uh, have the success that they're having um, and but doing it on their own terms. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And um, what was that, 40 years ago or something, that, the, the time that we're talking about? So it's, it's in, a while ago, In yeah. some strange kind of uh, extrapolation, it's – it's it's an ongoing kind of thing from both the original members of, of Fiothu and the original kind of swamp jockeys. So it's it's an interesting kind of combination of, of those two things. So I think what to me I didn't fully appreciate at the time was what was happening with those lyrics, and I I kind of understood that the music was 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 it was a product of the environment in many ways it was hot we used to rehearse outdoors because you had to we had to play in blinding stifling conditions um and you know sweaty yeah motivating people meant you you know because people just in the afternoon or the early evening they didn't want to dance <laughs> they wanted to sit back and drink beer yeah, but yeah. when you look out and you see 1200 people sweating and dancing you realize that you that 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 the the environment the climate the weather the people the types of people who were there um regular people but somehow we had to provide them with something that was going to make them dance and that was I, i think one of the keys yeah, the kind of the sound that we came up with is a kind of combination of you know, country and rock and you know, in loose term swamp, um, uh, uh, but there's also you know, uh, reggae thrown in there. So it was a, a bit of a, a melange of of things. And um, uh, Michael was a good songwriter. Um, Cal uh, and I worked on tracks together. Stewie and I worked on tracks together. Yeah, that, that was kind of really, really interesting. We wrote a song about um, uh, being hit by a cyclone um, and the build-up to that and the actual cyclone when Cal would do this amazing guitar solo and just create these whale noises which felt like you were inside the tumult of, a, of an actual cyclone and then it would die down and it was like the aftermath and then we sang a verse about the aftermath and um, that to write about things which um, are particular to your place did resonate a lot um, because people recognised it and they owned it and they identified it. So, yeah, I know that. Um, it's a bit like um, Skyhawks talking about their life in Melbourne at the time and that was, yeah, that hadn't been done before. Like, what do you mean? You can write songs about your own life? What? Um, and so there was, uh, we were mad keen on getting people on the dance floor because that's a party. Um, and 
um, if you can combine, um, you know, like mineral oils so successfully did, getting people just to rock out to really important messages, um, you know, every time they played Power and the Passion. Um, when we went on that tour, I saw that song every night for six weeks or, you know, um, and never failed to just be moved by how, pe- how much people engaged with that. And, uh, and that was just so powerful. I'm just thinking, yeah, back to the actual recording and how difficult it was for us to do this recording because, I mean, in those days um, there was was Rod Louis Gung, wasn't it, his studio? Yeah, that was it. And when we recorded Mango Dingo, that that first set of recordings, it was still being built around us. Yeah. It it hadn't been finished. It wasn't finished. It was a a 16-track that he had, I think. Yeah, and that was like, woo. That was a pretty big deal and it was – but it was a – quarter inch or one inch or half inch machine it, it, it wasn't the it was best ter- it was a terrible studio let's put it that way yeah, yeah. and there was a lot of noise on on the tracks uh, um, and the, the drum sound oh, awful awful cardboard boxes cardboard box, yes. <laughs> but um but yeah so the the conditions that we recorded under but i don't think we had much or any money i'm not even sure no, how much no, we, we raised. had a bit of band money and that was about it uh, even now, when I talk to um, Stuart Kellaway, who, who um, manages King Stingray, um, just the cost of getting a single artist from Nullumboy Airport to Sydney Airport is, at times, four to five thousand dollars return, which is just extraordinary. Yeah. That's one person. No, it was you know, yeah, like all young bands, our first recordings. So, we had no idea. Yeah, we had no idea, um, and we had a for a producer, a music journalist who had no idea either to get the best sounds. Um, we had an engineer who was just still building his studio, um, and we probably didn't have the mics. We didn't have the uh, uh, the wherewithal, and I was a pretty useless singer back in those days, and still not great shakes now. But the um, yeah, we were really quite nascent, and um, uh, demos and so on. We had the the Tascam four track, um, and literally four tracks yeah. to work with and on, if, cassette. on cassette. Mm. Um, and if you wanted more, you had to bounce stuff. And once you bounced it, it was unmixable and, and so on. So uh, it was great for putting down songs uh, immediately. And in some ways, I still love those earlier recordings better than the ones that ended up um, uh, being the so-called better recordings because they had such a, a, a lovely um, homespun feel. Um, the, the immediacy you can pick up from um, from those uh, early Tascam recordings were was just uh, it was just really lovely, but it, it's humbling, you know. And you've got to go through the really really tough times to get to the good times. Um, and if you don't have you know, the, the tough times, then you're missing out because you know it really helps galvanise um, your sound um, and your determination to go. Well, you know. This is the low point. Any anywhere up anywhere is up from here. But um, I just want to say, and um, I really look forward to working with you on the Knock'em Down Sound System project in April, twenty twenty four. No worries, it'll be very very exciting. Um, absolutely, I'm here. Hey!